1: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man.
0: The gospel never tells us something to do. The gospel tells us about something that's been done.
1: This episode deals with some sensitive content, and so it may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And we are going to talk about infertility today. We have a special guest with us, Karen Terrazas. This is something that she talks about a lot. Uh, If you follow her on her Twitter, which I can link that in episode notes and also her blog, especially kind of the church and ways the church doesn't always deal so well with it or um ways that we can improve and kind of having some honest conversations about it. I was thinking about this. Um it wasn't talked about very often, you know, when I was thinking about when I was having my first kids, and I'm glad to see that it's talked about more because sometimes a friend would kind of quietly tell me, hey, we're struggling with infertility. So I'm glad that it's talking about, I'm glad you're bringing attention to it, Karen. But before we dig into that, um, introduce yourself and, and uh, share a little bit about yourself and who you are.
0: Okay. Well, as Colleen said, my name is Karen Tarazis. Uh I have been married. We're coming up on eight years in March. I'm not sure when this will be released. So, but yeah, March will be our eighth year anniversary. Um, I did get married older. Um, I got married at 31, so we had planned to start having kids immediately, but that didn't happen. So that's kind of how I ended up talking about infertility. Because, um, you know, I, I thought I would follow the normal script. I went to Bible college. I expected to get married in Bible college, but that didn't happen. And So here you are. Um, very eclectic church background, but um reform theology I think has been one of the things that has really helped during this time in our lives dealing with infertility because it does add that there is still a purpose to it even though it's very painful me and my husband and our two dogs and a cat we currently live on the Navajo reservation where my husband is a teacher so that provides me a lot of time as a housewife to kind of research and talk to other women dealing with infertility as well. So I am hoping to write a book on this very topic here in the next couple of years.
2: Thank you, Karen, for sharing with us and for being on with us to talk about this, t- this subject. Um, there certainly is uh, a lack of good resources um, uh, to be had. And I'm, I'm glad that you're planning to write a book. Um, I know it's also a very sensitive subject, very personal. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing that of yourself with us. Um, for those of you, we've talked before about pregnancy loss. Um, you know, you know that I, I lost my first baby. Um, it was my first pregnancy, uh, and so while I didn't struggle with infertility uh, at the time when I lost my child, I too had thought, you know, I was going to get married, I was going to have kids, everything was going to go great, and then I lost my first, and I had no guarantees that it wouldn't happen again. And it, well, this is not my struggle. It was certainly something that I. I faced and thought about um, as I, I adjusted to the reality of my world. So um, how would you define infertility and how many couples would you say are dealing with it?
0: So infertility is defined as a couple that has unprotected sex for a year without any pregnancies. And that. Um, timeline is reduced down to six months for anyone over the age of 35 Um, and that's because the older you are obviously the less time you have so if you've gone six months of unprotected sex without a pregnancy after the age of 35 they want you to get in sooner to try to give you as much time as possible to figure out what's going on and hopefully help you achieve pregnancy. And currently one in eight couples experiences infertility in the United States. So that is twelve percent of the population will experience infertility of some form in the United States.
1: I think those statistics are really helpful to think about because those people are sitting next to you in church. You know, there's a there's a lot more people that are struggling through this, then I think we sometimes know, and it's not something necessarily easy to talk about. I appreciate that you've been so open about it. And I'm guessing that you've had women come to you because you're so open about it.
0: Yes, it's it's been ironic. For as big a church as my husband and I have been in, we haven't actually been in a church with another infertile couple. We've kind of managed to skate between those statistics. But my inbox on Twitter is full of women telling me their story and thanking me for, for speaking out about it because it is considered such a taboo t- topic in so many circles. Um And I'm hoping to do a little bit of my part to to break the taboo and to break the shame.
2: Yeah, I, have, <clears throat> I have a cousin who's dealing with secondary infertility.
0: Yeah, I don't talk too much about second infertil- secondary infertility because it's really not my... Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's definitely real. Um, and I I don't even know what the statistics on that are, but I, I know that they're that that's also an issue. So like my my mother in law has secondary infertility. They they had Brandon and that was it. They never had any more. Well, I mean, he has an older he has an older brother from a previous marriage, but mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Yeah, I heard a a Christian radio show years ago i mean this is probably like 20 years ago where they they did a discussion about infertility and secondary infertility and um and that's the first time I'd, i'd even heard of that and learned about it
0: the secondary infertility gets kind of a little weird on the definitions because like you know, you'll have people that have like six kids, but they wanted more. So then they want to claim secondary infertility status. And it's like, that's not the same thing as a couple that has one child and is never able to get pregnant again. So it's, it's, it's a weirder world that I just, it, I I don't feel like I can talk about because it's just, it's not my world, but yeah.
1: yeah, I think a lot of times um, that when we think about infertility, we think about something being, um i'm wrong with the woman that she can't conceive but it can also affect men and actually i have um a situation like that in in my own family uh that dealt with infertility and went and got all the tests and and um you know found out that it was the husband and that had a low sperm count uh, so can you talk about what are some of the causes of infertility and then the testing that's available out there. Cause there may be some people that are listening right now and this may be new to them, but maybe they're, you know, silently dealing with this.
0: Yeah. So, um, as far as like causes of infertility, it's actually fairly even split, um, a third, a third, a third with a third being caused by female factors, a third being caused by male factors and a third just being unknown where they can't pinpoint a cause. And so they just don't know, which unfortunately was what my husband and I got the, well, we don't know why you can't have kids and why you can't carry a pregnancy. So big question mark there. But as far as the causes we do know for men, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's going to have to deal with their sperm. So it's going to be a low sperm count, low mobility or low out. Morph- morphology that's the, the shape of the sperm those are the things that are going to cause problems on that would be considered male factor for women it's a much much more complicated um so my recommendation to any couple to the woman who is starting to wonder what may be going on with they're not getting pregnant even though you know they're, they're not using protection is um step number one is to get a copy of the book taking charge of your fertility.
1: And I can link that in the episode notes. Yeah.
0: It's by Tori. It's taking charge of your fertility by Tori Wechsler. Um, it Great is book. the gold standard for understanding your body. Um, and, I think that's the first step is to read that book and then to start temping, which is where you get a basal thermometer and you take your temperature at the same time every morning before you get out of bed because that's going to give you a lot of information about your cycle that will be very helpful to your doctor to see. So it's going to tell you if you're ovulating because obviously one one of the problems could be is that for whatever reason you're not ovulating so what you may miss may think is your period is actually something else and temping is going to show that it's also going to show if your luteal phase which is post ovulation is really short so that there's not a time to- enough time for um a egg that may have been fertilized to fully implant into the uterus and 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 able to survive. So that is one of the most helpful things is to start getting your information about your cycle through charting. And there's a lot of free apps that can do that. So you don't have to do it by paper and figure out all the craziness that comes with that. Um, And then as far as testing goes, um, for the guy, it's, you know, very straightforward, although horribly awkward is obviously, uh, they have to give a semen sample that will be looked at Um, and just for couples to know most clinics do allow couples to do that at home now and bring the sample in Um, because obviously the way it's done in clinic would probably be against most people's moral standards Um, because from what I understand from talking to a guy is you go into a room with all kinds of magazines and do your thing. Right. Um, so I do think it's helpful for Christians to know that there is the option to do that at home. So it's just between husband and wife. Um, and as far as the female goes, I, oh gosh, it's so many blood tests and so many ultrasounds that, and different tests that it kind of just gets overwhelming. I lost count of how many different blood tests and, and ultrasounds I had to be given a we don't know what's going on. Um, But that's where you really need to just talk to um, either a reproductive endocrinologist or to a fertility clinic, and they're going to be able to figure out the tests that are going to be the most helpful for trying to narrow down what's going on so that they can figure out the right treatment to help you get pregnant. (sighs)
2: I just wanted to add that um, the Taking Charge of Fertility, it's a great book, even if you're not struggling uh, or aren't sure if you're struggling with infertility, just understand your cycles. If you just want to understand better about how to conceive, how to understand your body and what's going on, it was very helpful, very informative. And I, yeah, I've recommended it many times. It's a great book. So what are some of the struggles that are common for people who are struggling with infertility? Uh it, Isolation, grief. What are some things that are um, common ways that people struggle?
0: Um, well, obviously, the there's the grief aspect because it's like you know, everyone when you ex- when you get married, you know, the natural question is, well, when are you going to start a family? Like, when are you going to have kids? And it just becomes natural. And if you're trying those questions, especially if you're not open about trying. You know, if you're just trying to keep it on the down low, can be just very heartrending because you don't know how to answer them. And you're just like, well, you know. And something like I talk about, I've, I've talked about on Facebook, and I don't know if it's made it to my blog. Um, if not, I'll put it over on my blog here and here soon. Um, is that when it comes to like the infertility, when you are desperately trying to have a baby, you go through the entire five steps of grief every 28 days if you have a typical cycle. So uh, like for me, when I would first, you know, the first day of my period, I would be like, no, it's not my period. It's it's implantation bleeding. It's gotta be implantation bleeding. And so I would just be in this denial stage. And then, you know, when it became clear that it was actually my period, it would just be angry, You're like so angry that it didn't work out this month and then you get into the bargaining and this is where you're like on google trying to figure out how to how to make you know yourself more fertile so you're like i will drink any pop and i will forego sugar and you just make all kinds of bargains with like they'll make this month different than the last one. And and then you get the depression because you're just realizing there's really actually nothing you can do. And then you reach the end and you're like, okay, well that last month wasn't it. So we'll just, we'll see again. And then you just, you hit that acceptance and then your period's going to come in a few days and you're going to go through it all over again. And it's, it's exhausting to, to zoom through that on such a, such a short time frame, but then also there's that, you go through a larger grief cycle, which probably took me about four years to get all the way through of uh, where I've accepted um, being infertile. Um, my husband and I are, are, are accepting of the fact that we are childless and that's okay, but it took a lot of time and a lot of prayer and a lot of tears to get to that point. And it was very isolating through a lot of it because people just don't understand. And I think the other thing, especially for women, you know, you find out that you're on your period when you're by yourself, you usually get that negative pregnancy test when you're by yourself. So these huge hurtful moments are things you can't announce to the world and you're by yourself trying to process. Um so it's very isolating, and it's and it's just very grief filled in every sense of the word.
1: I'm so sorry you've been through this. Um, I know. I'm sure that maybe sometimes it feels like an emotional roller coaster. Oh to yes. Just working through this and all of the emotions and, um, yeah. So I'm I'm sorry that you've had to suffer this way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Can you talk about advanced reproductive technology and describe some of the different ki- kinds of um, sometimes abbreviated art, advanced reproductive technology?
0: Yes. Um, I think one of the huge misnomers out there about ARTs is that you walk into a fertility clinic and then they schedule when your IVF. In, in vitro fertilization, uh, IVF with in vitro fertilization, and then you'll you'll walk out with your baby. But really, the process of ARTs starts very simple and very non-invasive, and works up the ladder to the most invasive, which is in vitro. Um, so, like when we went to the clinic, um, the the doctor basically started with very simple you're going to have timed intercourse. So your cycle is X number of days. I want you to have intercourse on day 11, 13, 15, and 17. And you do that for a couple of months. Um, and then they'll add in to, okay, well, let's let's add in OPKs or ovulation prediction kits, which are, you know, you can get them at the store um, or Amazon and basically you, test your urine until you get a positive test telling, telling you that you're going to ovulate in the next 12 hours. And then obviously you get busy when um, you have that positive OPK. And so then you do that for a few months. And then the next step is, well, we'll start looking, we'll start doing ultrasounds to see when you're ovulating. Um, And then you still time it around that. And then you, then you get into the drug protocols, which where you take different, um, fertility drugs that are that are supposed to help with um, either helping normalize your cycle or you know for some women if they're not ovulating it's to make them ovulate Uh, for for some it's okay you're gonna release multiple eggs so that there's more of a chance that um, one of them will be fertilized and and then you get into the more scientific realm where you can have either an IUI which is um interuteral insemination where they take the husband's sperm and put it directly into the uterus bypassing the vaginal canal altogether. Um, Or IVF, which is the most invasive, most technical, where they take, retrieve eggs from the mother or the wife and the sperm from the husband and put them in a Petri dish and have them fertilized there. And then at either three days or five days, they'll put um, those embryos into the mother hoping that they'll stick. So it's, it's a, you don't go straight to IVF. It's, it's a process.
2: So, you know, one of the things that I've had friends and family deal with are uh, frequent miscarriages and mm-hmm. the the pain of of that, uh, as well as other types of infertility, can you talk a little bit about about that particular issue? Infertility with frequent mis- miscarriage, as well as um, what early testing and chemical pregnancies.
0: Yes, it's. I have found when it comes to infertile women, there's there's two types. There's there's ones that will avoid testing because they find pos- they find negative pregnancy tests to be triggering or there's the other ones that will start testing as early as 6 6 days past ovulation mm-hmm. and you know most pregnancy tests if you look at them advise that you not take them until the day after your missed period, but they're also so sensitive that I've seen people on forums get positive pregnancy tests as early as eight days past ovulation. So that's almost um, six days before a missed period. Um, But what can happen is that they're actually detecting a chemical pregnancy which is a phenomenon where uh, an egg is fertilized, and it starts producing the pregnancy hormone that is picked up on these tests, but for whatever reason is not able to fully implant in the uterus. And so you end up just having your period like normal, it may be a day late, but that's about it. And so you will have a huge overlap with people that have discovered their chemical pregnancies and infertility because of early testing. But the other side is, is early testing can be very important for some of the treatments. So for example, one thing we've discovered with me is, is I don't produce the progesterone I should when I have been pregnant, which for listeners, I've had six miscarriages. Um, all before six weeks. And so the sooner I can get onto a progesterone supplement, the in theory, the more likely I am to carry the term. So it is very much catch 22 of testing early to maybe intervene faster, but also grieve the the life you knew you had, but lost too soon.
1: I want to talk about the church a little bit and how we approach this subject. Um, what are the, what are some of the struggles specifically in the church for those dealing with infertility? And maybe as part of that, talk about how maybe even some of the teachings out there that make this more difficult for someone like you.
0: Yeah, um, this is obviously, this is where a lot of my focus is, is, is trying to help churches better minister to infertile couples, because as most churches are set up right now, they are very family oriented. So the Bible studies for women are focused on like mothering and helping with develop your preschooler. So mops, which I know you've done a podcast on or something similar, or, um, you know, you know, it's the, we're a family oriented church and whatnot. And so couples like my husband and I, we, we've quickly outgrow the the newly married with no kids group because we're not newly married and we're much older than, you know, those 20 year olds getting married out of college. But, we don't fit in with the the family-oriented stuff either where it's all about, hey, what homeschool curriculum are you using and what sports are you doing? And so we're kind of just left out in the um, cold, so to speak. And then the other thing is when you have the teaching, especially to women, that motherhood is their highest calling and you have women sitting there that desperately want to be a mother but can't, that's just a um a stab in the already bruised heart. Like I will never forget, Colleen, listening to one of your podcasts several years ago where one of your guests said that motherhood is not the highest calling. And I just started crying because I hadn't realized until that moment how much I'd internalized that message. And you know, there I was an infertile woman desperate to fulfill that quote, highest calling and there was so much freedom in being told that that wasn't my highest calling.
1: Yeah. That's something that um, I've even thought about as now an empty nester. Okay. Well, I'm still a mom, but it's different now. And Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, mother's day, father's day, those are, those are hard days. And, and you know, when you have those things where it's like, have all the mothers stand up like the, the woman that's desperately trying just feels so seen if she's even gone on Mother's Day. A lot of infertile couples do not show up to churches on those days because they just, it's too painful. And I don't blame them one bit because it is a very painful reminder of how out of step you are with the culture. And then the other thing, and this is this has been something I really push back on, is, is when Infertile couples are referred to as exceptions because like we're 12% of the couple population that's that's significant that's not rare or exceptional and and the the fact that there's this with how common infertility is in the Bible that there isn't more understanding to the the pain and the the grief that comes with it. It's just, it's something that, for as much as the Bible talks about it, gets ignored by so much of the church.
2: So, how would you encourage churches to do better?
0: So, I think I'm going to go on a number of different angles. I think, first of all, as far as if a couple comes to a pastor or their elder or a deacon about infertility, I would really encourage them to stay up on the latest um, advancements in ARTs because um, I see so much like incorrect information, like, oh, if you go have IVF done, you're going to, they're going to put eight um, embryos in and you'll, you could possibly have multiples or they'll want you to do a reduction. And it's like, that's no longer standard. Um, the, the doctor I was talking to says that two is the max, and rarely will they do three, and that's only if the embryos are graded very low. Um, so get up to date on that. Like an interesting update I just read, this is very new, um, but in England, a fertility clinic successfully had a, a live birth from a frozen egg that they unfroze and then did IVF with. So if that continues, no longer will IVF require the fertilization of a bunch of eggs to then be frozen. So then you have the snowflake babies. It'll just require fertilizing a couple eggs at a time, which would be huge for, you know, those of us that do care about the life of those snowflake babies. Um, I think the other thing churches need to do on a, on a more, on a less scientific aspect is they need to recognize their infertile couples and still make them a part of the church, you know, not have the church be so family oriented that there's no space for them. Um, and you know, that means acknowledging that infertility is a thing and, and, you know, looking at what the, how the scripture talks about infertile couples and, I think a huge thing I would love to hear more about from from preachers when it comes up within the within their preaching is the fact that under the new covenant the covenant is not expanded through childbearing like the reason why women in the old Testament were known by their fertility status is because that's how the old covenant was expanded. It was through having children and they were waiting for that seed, that promised seed. But after Mary, we don't know anything about the fertility status of any woman in the, in the new Testament from Lydia to Chloe to Junia to Phoebe. Um, that's all mis- mysterious to us because it's about their relation to the church, not how many children they've had in trying to advance the coming seed. And I think that is very important. And I have to I have to quote something, and I, I have to give a shout out to Kat. We all love Kat here at Theology Gals. Um, she said on her Facebook page back in December... Quote, I personally do not need one person to weep with me that I've not born a physical child. I need people to rejoice with me that I have eternal spiritual children all over the place. I am not in mourning. I am blessed. My loves. No Christian is barren. The Holy spirit sees to this and unquote. I just think that is a beautiful sentiment because there is so much pressure, both in the infertility world and in the church to have biological children. And it is a load off for people to recognize that that is not a necessity to advance God's kingdom.
1: So beyond churches specifically, and you gave a lot of um, great encouragement there. I know that we have a lot of people that, you know, have a friend or somebody at church That's struggling with this right now. And I'd like you to talk about on a more personal note, things that could be encouraging, but I also want you to talk about things not to do. And I will tell you when I lost a baby, it was one of the hardest times in my life because I lost the baby Um, as had a second trimester miscarriage and the whole situation was extremely difficult Um, But on top of that, it made it more difficult because of some of the things that people said to me. And so I think it's important to talk because I'm sure um, just like me, I I have a chronic illness and some of the not helpful things are said to me a lot. And I'm sure that you have dealt with that too. So talk about ways we can help, but also things not to do.
0: So I think ways that uh, people can help individually is, you know, just being willing to listen to, to share in that burden somehow. Um, something that my best friend did that I was, I am so grateful for is she would put in her calendar every time I had an appointment with a fertility doctor and she would call me and be like, what did you find out? What can I do to help? And I just thought that that was so cool that she like found a way to walk through that with me, even though she lived in a different state. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say like specifically how to help people because everyone's so different. Like there is so much shame around infertility. And so a lot of couples don't hide it, but if someone, if someone trusts you enough to share that they're trying and haven't been able to get pregnant, like honor that trust by listening to them and and you know just listening to them and like and you know asking informative questions um and it's, that'll lead into like what not to do don't immediately go into your random miracle story you know of you know some distant relation who was infertile did x and now has eight kids like their story is not the story of the person that's talking to you. Um, Don't ask if they've tried X, Y, or Z or, or whatnot, because most likely they've had, or if they haven't, there's reasons why they haven't because, you know, they're working with a doctor who knows their specific situation. Um, And on a, on another note, um, and this goes into another topic, Kind of tangentially, don't just be like, well, you could just adopt. Um, We need to be very careful with how adoption is treated. Um, I am not an adopted kid myself, but I've had adults that were adopted as kids reach out to me on Twitter thanking me for saying that adoption is not a consolation prize, that it's not plan B, which It's often treated that way when talking to infertile couples, I found. Um, Or the even worse is, well, you know, if you adopt, you'll most likely have one of your own. Like, that is just not helpful to the infertile couple, but it's also very dehumanizing to kids that need adoption. Because they need to be adopted for themselves, not as this last-ditch effort to have your own biological child. Um, and then one last thing I would say, and and this, this just goes in general, but especially for churches, um, they need to be okay with a couple that doesn't end up with a child. Um, there is so much pressure to keep going until you have a child to do the next procedure, to do the next protocol, to do one more cycle. And it gets overwhelming and, what I have come up with when I'm, when I'm talking to, to couples, when they start asking, um, well, when do you know when you, you should stop? Um, you should stop when it, the thought of going forward is worse than the thought of, of, of stopping. And it's okay to stop. It's okay to not have that miracle child. It's okay to just be a couple and your family just be the two of you. And if a couple has reached that point in the church, they need to be celebrated for that's the end of their journey. They've they've reached the other side. They've they've accepted what God has for them and that's okay.
2: That's very helpful. Thank you. I know we have a number of women listening today and and not just women. We have husbands too that are struggling as well Um, can you offer some encouragement or comfort to them things that have been helpful to you
0: so encouragement is you're not alone and I I feel for the guys there's the topic so often centers around women um but all the guys out there that are holding their wives every month like I see you I shout out to you! My husband himself was just incredible, so I have to I have to give him credit for all the times he just helped me. And you know, he he has lost out too, but um, they're not alone. Um, as far as encouragement goes, a passage that I found strangely encouraging and and whatnot is um, Isaiah. Uh, it says it's isaiah fifty four one and let me get it into the right translation um, which says um this is from the new American standard shout for joy in one. You who have not given birth to any child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud who have not been in labor for the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman says the Lord. And back when I was really trying to come to terms with being infertile, I, I, I did a whole study on joy in in the Bible, and I was struck by the fact of how often joy was juxtaposed against um, infertility or barrenness, and that's because, you know, in biblical times, that was like the worst thing that could happen to a woman was to be infertile because she had no chance to to be the mother of the seed, the promised seed, and so joy is put against that. And C.S. Lewis, I'm going to paraphrase this really badly, talks about how joy is a signpost that points us to heaven. And when things are going well, if you are on a road, you don't really notice the signs because you don't need them. You know where you're going. But when you are lost in the forest and then you find a sign pointing you to your destination, there is relief there is joy as cs lewis described it in knowing where you're going and so i think the encouragement i would have is it hurts and that's okay you're going to grieve and that's okay but when you are pointed to heaven you will under, you will have a greater understanding of joy because you have felt such pain that the longing for heaven just is that much sweeter. And that brought me much comfort during my, my years of dealing of trying to get to a point where I was fine with not having kids.
1: That was very well said. And I'm I'm glad you talked about that um, because that's something for, for different reasons that uh, I focused on in, in suffering and God's faithfulness to me and and helping me to see that. Well, we're going to link a couple things in the episode notes. You have a blog and I imagine you'll be writing more on that especially as you look to doing a book. And then yes. I'll also I'll also link you're very active on Twitter talking mm-hmm. about this. So I'm going to link your your Twitter also and then the book that you mentioned Earlier, on this, I think this has given us a really excellent kind of overview on the on the topic, and you know, hopefully, I know you've talked about wanting pastors to um, understand this this subject more. And I know we do have some pastors that that listen to us. Is there anything we we didn't hit on that maybe you would like to mention?
0: Um, I just, just a couple things. I I do want to say to anyone listening to this, um, uh, you can DM me like, that's fine. I'm willing to talk to anyone and any pastors, like I've said, I would love to just sit down with pastors and give them kind of a crash course on infertility, like even more in depth than we went in on here so they can better help. Um, People in their congregation dealing with, and then one last thing I I do want to say because I, I saw this as a common refrain in groups of of people feeling bad for for feeling sad about their infertility. Like it's okay to mourn being infertile. I mean, the Bible talks about how like the the, the barren womb is never satisfied. So what you're feeling is normal. Just use that grief to look to Christ, but don't don't beat yourself up for feeling grief over this because that is natural. And don't don't feel shame for your feelings. I, I recognize how much shame shame is around this topic, but this isn't something you should be ashamed of because God does have a reason for it and you can be used in incredible ways regardless of your um parental status
1: yeah I think you you made two great points I remember when we had darby on the podcast and something that she said has always stuck with me that as Christians um there's sometimes n- not permission to grieve to mm-hmm. to mourn you know well God is sovereign and we just need to trust him and yes that is true but we should still grieve, we should still mourn. And I, I think that's important. And it's okay. Sometimes we have some weird views in the church that come out. So, well, Karen, thank you so much. This was such a great overview on infertility and how the church can do better and, you know, so much more. So, thank you for joining us
0: yes thank you for having me i'm I was very excited to come on and talk about this because this is definitely my my heart is in this and and when when I get farther along in my book i will I will definitely update you so you can update in the group or on
1: the podcast absolutely one last thing I'm assuming there just isn't a lot of great resources Christian resources on this topic
0: no there's really not so as part of my uh my i'm really just in the research phase slash writing up a survey. Cause what I'm wanting to do is very similar to what Sheila. Or what she did for the great sex rescue was I want to get surveys out to get a lot of feedback on how, how different women have felt in the church and, and get that quantified and and get stories and then write a book on like what is not helpful and what is helpful. Um, so so far I've been looking at different books that deal with infertility, and one book I was I was pleasantly surprised of. So I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend this book as well. It's kind of a kind of a devotional of someone that wrote about it. Um, it's 31 Days of Prayer During Infertility by Lisa Newton. Like so far it's been the best. Christian book I've read and it's it's more it's more of a devotional workbook than anything on infertility. But yeah, so far what I've read has just been horrible. So I'm wanting to to fix that and to to give people more helpful helpful information, um, especially from a viewpoint where there's not the miracle child at the end, because I I find that kind of hurtful as as a woman that didn't get the miracle child that that's the only voice that's represented um I think it's very much like married people writing about single life like you may kind of remember but it's still not the same as as the single that's still living with it so I I want to write the book from the yeah I still don't have kids perspective
1: well and as you work on that project definitely share it with us so we can pass it along because I know there's so many gals in the group um so well um to our listeners we'll see you in 2 weeks